Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. Hello, Naisha. Thank you for joining us today. What an absolute pleasure to be with you again, Linda. Thank you for having me. Well, this is just how it worked out, but it was so amazing because this show is following on from Dr. Akbar Khan last week talking about cancer, and he had so many cancer questions. Cancer is such a hot topic, and people are really interested in knowing what they can do to self-help themselves if they have cancer in the family you know what can they do and we'll get into what your recommendations are after we've talked about you putting you in the spotlight oh. there <laughs> did you always oh no pressure <laughs> no 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 pressure did you always want to be a doctor that's a great question um my mom would probably tell you yes because apparently as a child, I would line up all of my stuffed animals and doctor them. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I recall telling my mother that I wanted to be a bank teller. That's my most early memory <laughs> of career choices because I loved counting counting bills and coins. But um, by the time I did make it on into undergraduate my education, I had pretty much firmed up in my mind that I was pre-med and at that time very much interested in going into conventional medicine. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's been, I guess, part of me from a, an early age. So what experience have you gained since you qualified to now? Wow. And, and part of my biggest experience as far as going into the study of even the pre-medical education, um, my very first job out of college was as a, I, I got certified as a nursing assistant in a nursing home environment. And I worked on the Alzheimer's unit for a long period of time. I worked as a CNA in private home health care. And I also worked as a CNA, which is certified nursing assistant in a variety of um, assisted living and um, high need living environments. So I had exposure starting at a pretty young age, age 18, 19 into medicine. And then I also just had a, a general fascination and understanding of the human body and the human psyche. And so my undergraduate degree was initially full pre-med with a, a major in biology and a minor in chemistry. Um, but my own health, it really is what took me on a whole new journey. I was poised to go into conventional medicine. I was very interested in doing that. And after a year of dealing with some very severe health issues, uh, I was finally diagnosed um, a little too bit too late um, at that time with a very aggressive um, cancer process that I was not given any hope of surviving. And thanks to that experience, exactly. You didn't tell me that. You talk about what led us. I surprise. (laughs) Exactly. So, um, a lot of people. I actually didn't share that story um, for a very long time. My story actually just sort of came out 
um, officially on Dr. Kelly Turner's Radical Remission website. Um, while I was in private practice, I didn't feel uh, comfortable giving what I did as my approach to treating cancer um, to guide or, or direct somebody else's choices. I feel like this is a very personal decision. And with proper education and empowerment, people make the right decisions for themselves. <laughs> and so for me, at such a young age, that led me down this track of getting steered away from conventional medicine and turning very directly and facing integrative naturopathic medicine from the get-go, thanks to my own health issues, as well as the understanding at a very young age, I understood that my cancer process was just as much an emotional component and traumatic component as it was a physical nutrient deficiency, chemical toxicity component. So for some reason, it became very clear to me at a young age that I needed to address both. And that switched my degree from biology chemistry to a major in psychology, minor in biology. And I, at that time, this was in 1991, mind you, I switched my gears into what is a field now known as psychoneuroimmunology. Very interested in that. And it was just in its infancy at that time. And I mean, my gosh, even today, it's only been a couple of years that we've given any credence to the immune system with regards to oncology. But you can imagine back in 1991, there wasn't a heck of a lot of information um, on the mind-body connection. And so that took me on a whole new path, a whole new trajectory. And that experience of saving my own life and working on it diligently all those years, and now as of October 21st, 2016, I'm 25 years out from that diagnosis and still thriving and have supported tens of thousands of patients um, in their own chronic healthcare endeavors, including um, exclusively since 2012 oncology patients. And it has been an ongoing life learning process and dynamic one. It's not the same. What I know now, I didn't know even a year ago, much less five years ago. And certainly we didn't have the information I have now 25 years ago. Wow. I am stunned. <laughs> <laughs> It's not often I'm I'm lost yeah. for words, but that that is amazing. So, what yeah. is the mind body connection uh, with cancer? If you could tell us briefly, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Sure. Well, it is interesting, and there's actually we've actually understood that there's a, even a consideration of a cancer personality. They call it sort of the type C personality. Just like we have the type A personality that's very driven, there's this type C personality that tends to be very much the caregiver, um, putting everybody else and everything else before them, their own needs being met last, if ever at all. And so that tends to be a, a pretty common theme I see within my clients um, who are facing this diagnosis. There is also a lot of evidence <coughs> and emerging evidence on our um, epigenetics and how a childhood trauma, childhood abuse changes our epigenetic expression and makes us more prone to cancer in late childhood and early adulthood, um, which has been the case, again, in myself and many of the patients I've worked with over the years. And then in Dr. Lawrence Lachan's work, uh, Cancer as a Turning Point, um, you can go back and read his book that tells us that a lot of folks six months to two years prior to a diagnosis of cancer, there was a kind of a, an event that sort of broke the, the camel's back, if you will. So 
something that really perpetuated a change in the chemistry, a stress-induced response that changed um, growth factors, changed chemical messengers, changed cytokine inflammatory activity in the body, and even epigenetic expression that then turned on, if you will, a cancering process that may have been and is often dormant in all of us all of the time. So it is growing in our understanding of how much our thoughts and our life experiences do in fact impact the way we experience health or disease. It certainly is really interesting. Um, I haven't actually got into that before, so that's something new for me. So, it's often new. I, uh, go ahead. I really liked when I spoke to you last and I interviewed you. And what I took away from that interview was, is your roadmap. You know, this is where you are now. Mm. This is where you want to, to get to. And this is the roadmap that shows you the way. And I just really like that concept of that idea of, you know, you are there to help guide people. <clears throat> and as the... Uh, the sponsor advert at the front there was saying how you work with people's own physicians. And my understanding is it isn't only people who live locally to you, you treat people globally. Globally. Yeah. In fact, probably less than 2% of my current active client base live locally. Um, I really do spend the majority of my time consulting with uh, doctors, researchers, and clients from all over the country and around the world. Mm. Now, how easy is it to operate? Sorry, <coughs> mm-hmm. operate um, from such a long way away, communicating with the patient and with their doctors and healthcare people. How do you go about putting that all together? Ah, it's a good question. It's, it has its moments. Sometimes it's easier than other times. The, the main thing is if we have, um, say, a client, you know, brings an advocate, whether it's a family member, a spouse, a good friend, for an extra set of ears mm-hmm. to make sure that the communication is really well received, that's key. Um, also, depending on how open their healthcare team is to working with somebody outside of the box, if you will, though, ironically, the majority of people who consult with me are kind of considered from the conventional paradigm, whether they're doctors or researchers or even clients that are brand new to integrative oncology. Um, I used to think that my patient population would be more of the sort of alternative inclined population, but in the last two years, that's really changed drastically. Um, And I've found a much warmer reception and welcome and communication and collaboration with oncologists and general practitioners and whatnot around the world. So the ease in which to communicate is getting better. And of course, our social media and our uh, technologies allow me to be talking with someone, say, in India um, over different platforms that I can see them, I can, you know, connect with them, and that we can have uh, a really good, rich conversation, even if we're, you know, continents away from one another. Isn't technology amazing? It really is. It makes the world (laughs) smaller. 
it makes it so much smaller. And that I think is also key as to why the cancer the cancer conversation is changing so drastically and that we are making the world smaller. Patients are able to engage with each other better so they can create support groups. In fact, I think that's been one of the biggest drivers of my personal growth as a clinician, as a teacher, and as my own self-care is finding such go-getter, educated, passionate patients who are driving their own health care and demanding changes and demanding good communication among their healthcare team. That I think is what's changed what I've seen in 25 years of working in this field the most. It's been a patient-driven process, not a doctor-driven process. And what would happen if a client came to you and wanted to have you on board, but their oncologist was saying no? What how do you get round? I mean, it must happen. Not all of them are going to say, it, oh, oh, yeah, you know, yes, I'm open to this. <laughs> so what, yeah. <laughs> what happens to the ones yeah, who yeah, say exactly. no? Well, I mean, first of all, what's so very important to remember here is that you as the patient, you are the CEO of your company, right? Mm-hmm. You call the shots. You have the first and the last day. And what I, I often, you know, tell clients, a lot of them initially were fearful that their doctors would drop them or fire them. And to be sort of held hostage by that mentality is just as damaging and stress-inducing to their chemistry as any toxin from the environment or poor dietary choices or lack of exercise, right? So who you choose to hang out with is, is important in your, in your healthcare team as well. And so what I found is even if a doctor is closed to this ideology, most doctors I've met are still about the patient outcome. They still want to see their patient be well. So if the patient is empowered and educated enough to say, hey, I know you may not understand this, I know you may not even agree with this, but this is the approach I'm taking, and I am willing to be in good, open communication and collaboration with you, as is my integrative provider, and as long as you're willing to be open to that, we can move forward. Mm. And if they aren't willing to, frankly, you can get a new doctor, right? That's, That's what it comes down to. A lot of my patients fire their doctors and start over and find a better match. I do for sure have clients that don't feel like they could ever have this conversation and do, I guess, in essence, hide that they're working integratively. I don't favor that by any means. I don't even recommend that. And I really encourage them against that. But ultimately, I trust the patient's own, you know, value system and their own need to do the best they can for their care in any given moment. I can remember uh, when I had my eldest daughter, a nurse saying to me, a doctor was trying to persuade me to have whatever it was I I didn't want to do. And I felt that (laughs) then I was 23 and I thought doctors were God. And obviously what they said was true. And if they advised and recommended something, then you had to do it, that you didn't have any say. And I can remember this nurse saying to me, you don't have to take the doctor's recommendations. You are allowed to say no. And I can remember thinking, really, how can I say no to a doctor? (laughs) I'm I'm much bolder these days, but I can remember thinking, you can't, you can't do that. (laughs) But it is, 
<laughs> Absolutely everybody's right to listen yeah. and take on board what they say. But then the decision, like you say, is ultimately up to you. It's your body. It's your life. It's your yeah. decision at the end of the day. And I think that is um, a really good way of thinking. So I'm pleased that people do go on and find mm. doctors who who are open and, and ready to work with you. So before we go any further, we'll just have a quick break and then we'll come back and discuss how you go about helping the patient when they first contact you. To listen to individual radio shows and interviews, go to www.mixcloud.com forward slash LDNRT. I'll repeat that. It's www.mixcloud.com forward slash LDNRT. The diagnosis of cancer is overwhelming. We at Optimal Terrain lighten your load by partnering with you and your healthcare team to examine your personal terrain to uncover the root of the disease process. We recognise you as more than your cancer diagnosis. Find out more at www.optimalterrainconsulting.com Welcome back. So, Naisha, put you on the spot again. <laughs> when a patient first comes to see you and says, I have a diagnosis of whatever kind of cancer, what are the first steps that you take to reassure the patient and to get them on the roadmap? Excellent. So, first of all, again, there's kind of a variety of uh, folks that will call call our um, optimal terrain for a consultation. We, of course, our preference is to have people call us and say, hey, I'd like to do everything I can to never have this diagnosis. What can you do to help? That's, you know, the dream, the dream team. But um, unfortunately, that's not what we see, although it's starting to happen, which is exciting. Um, most often the case is we'll see folks who are somewhere into the process of their diagnosis of cancer and their treatment of cancer and are finding that they need some support um, or have learned that maybe they can enhance their outcomes with bringing in an integrative approach. And then, of course, the, um, the cancer process that we most often see in our office are the folks who've been basically gosh, given up on. Um, hope has been removed from their world. They've been sent home um, to get their affairs in order, and they're really at a last-ditch effort of looking for options to support them. That's still, unfortunately, the majority of the folks that we work with. Then the next would be the folks that are somewhere in the midst of treatment. And then ultimately, where I'd love to be working with clients is when they're very first diagnosed or even prior to a diagnosis, so we can really work on the concept of prevention. However, let's kind of take that middle ground road. You've been diagnosed, you're now into maybe surgery or treatment, and you are looking for more options. So when somebody calls us up, we take a very extensive, if I'm sure some of my clients are listening in today, um, and they can attest to that, but we do a very extensive personal family medical history. We do an extensive environmental exposure history. We take an extensive um, chronic, you know, um, 
sort of like a chronicity of major life events and illnesses, injuries, traumas, surgeries, infections. So we have a sense of maybe where things picked up momentum along the way. We do a diet assessment, a diet diary, even a pantry assessment. And we have questionnaires that we ask all of our patients from the get-go so that we as the clinicians can really sort of tease out the patterns and the, the very individual patterns that if I had 10 patients with stage four ovarian cancer, and maybe they're all the same age, um, they would all have that type of cancer for a very different reason. They would have come to that point in their lives, to that point on the roadmap, if you will, from very different routes. And so we help establish where they've come from by taking that very thorough history then we assess where they are in that moment, typically with a lot of, you know, a, a lot of my patients will say we do a bloodletting. Mm. We draw a lot of labs. We really look under the hood and explore their physiology. If we're lucky enough to have tumor assays, um, circulating tumor cell assays, epigenetic information, any other provocative testing, we'll, of course, take that into account. Um, and then we really do a thorough overview of this well before we even have the conversation with the patient, spending an average of four to five hours researching them. And if it's a newer cancering process or a newer molecular profile or epigenetic pattern we're not familiar with, we'll study that. And then we put together a very comprehensive roadmap, a plan that outlines and educates the patient very thoroughly about the patterns in their life and what they mean and where they are currently with their laboratory values and what their ultimate goals are, where we're shooting for, and how often to retest those labs to know how they're doing, and then recommendations on a variety of treatments, dietary lifestyle modifications, supplements, nutrients, herb interactions, integrative therapies, targeted therapies, clinical trials, practitioners around the world that might be a better fit for them for certain situations, et cetera. And those roadmaps end up being somewhere between, gosh, 50 to 75 pages on average. And they're organized with an index and uh, a strong outline and re reference point for patients. And then we also give a lot of handouts um, and uh, references for them for their, that's specific to what they have going on. So it's comprehensive to say the least. Um, and we end up having a discussion, again, preferably with their healthcare team or family members or loved ones in on the conversation for extra sets of ears and extra sets of eyes. And then typically we send them off on their journey. And for many people, that's plenty. They've got stuff to work on for months, if not years, with the information we pull together for them. For those that are in a more acute or sort of life and death situation, we might follow up with them in a few months. Um, and stick with them until they're stable and maintained, if not in remission or no evidence of disease. And again, we're also there to support their practitioners um, if there's questions arise. We've actually had a lot of patients who, um, when they take our plan to their practitioners, whether they're conventional oncologists or other naturopathic doctors or integrative providers in any level, oftentimes we'll get a call or an email from that provider saying, holy cow, mm -hmm. <laughs> can I do this, right? Um, how, how can I get other patients in? So we actually are growing a, a, a large uh, following within our, our healthcare providers looking to us to help them co-manage their patients, which is also very exciting to me. Mm, very exciting. From my yeah. own experience with going to my mother, 
with my mother to the doctors and the doctor asking her, what is your diet like? What are you eating? And my mother Mm -hmm. would tell her everything that she'd already been told she was meant to eat and didn't mention anything she shouldn't eat. She didn't say, I cover (laughs) everything in salt so it looks like snow. She didn't say, I have my butter (laughs) so thick it looks like cheese. And she lived with me, so I was in a nice way, nagging, yeah. I guess, you know, oh, um, please don't, don't put salt on like that. Please don't, you know, can I butter your bread for you? You know, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. But she wouldn't I ever tell it. the doctor. So it was really handy, right. not, not for my mum, but for me to be there. So to say, well, actually, <laughs> but do you. To be the true historian on that. Yes. But do you find your patients tell you the truth when you ask them about everything, really? Are they honest? Yeah. Well, I, well, I think because of the amount, the volume of information that I'm offering and the word of the mouth um, of other clients saying, basically, the more you tell her, the more she's going to be able to help you. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a little bit mm-hmm. of peer pressure there. Um, again, in a lot of support groups, they kind of encourage each other to step up and speak their truth. Mm. I don't find that they withhold too terribly much. And if they do in the beginning, I find out because their <laughs> labs tell me the truth okay. if they aren't correct. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, and also I want to, one of the things this book um, that Jeff Kelly and I um, aim to change is even what just came out of your mouth a moment ago, there's a lot of mythology around the proper diet. And we also hope to dispel a lot of those myths. And so for instance, if someone tells me they cover something in butter, that it's a mountain of butter, in my world, if that's grass-fed, organic, grass-fed and grass-finished butter, raw source, that is actually medicine. And I want you to use it as a huge nutrient intake um, in, in many of the cases. And salt, you know, we've actually learned that, of course, if it's, if it's Morton salt or those processed, bleached, iodized, chemicalized salts, well, then, of course, those are poison. Absolutely. But if it is a beautiful Celtic sea salt, Himalayan sea salt, um, any of those, Actually, you can be quite liberal with those because they're rich in minerals. And most of our patients are very depleted in potassium and magnesium and the other minerals there that are really rich in these sea salts. So you might find some surprises as you dive deeper into this book that we're kind of a little bit uh, happy about quality grass-fed butter and quality uh, salt. So just using that as an example, Mm. we try and dispel a lot of the myths and bring people up to the recent research and science of optimal nutrition in altering the chemistry of a cancering process. And a lot of the decision-making process of how we choose the best diet in any given moment for a patient is not out of dogma or um, popular reading online. It's based on that person's blueprint, their personal chemistry, their lab evaluation, um, their current treatment status. What are they even able to eat at this time? What are their cravings? We direct it and guide it around where the patient is in every situation as, as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. we know from last week that <clears throat> people were calling in and asking, you know, there is a history of cancer in my family. What can I do now to prevent cancer uh, appearing later? Great. Yeah. And that's, you know, I don't know. Uh, 
you know, what, what he had said last week that when I hear that, in fact, uh, my gosh, in another two weeks, I have a patient that her mother died of breast cancer with the BRCA gene. Her sister died of breast cancer with the BRCA gene, and she just found out she has the BRCA gene, and she is not keen on a preemptive surgery. Um, and so she is consulting with us to explore what's going on in her terrain by doing that full assessment that I mentioned, mm -hmm. by taking all the labs to take a really good snapshot and see exactly where she is. And then we have the tools and the information that we can individualize for her, how she's going to avoid going down that road. You know, my biggest pet peeve are people who think that having a surgical intervention only is enough to preempt a cancer diagnosis. And for someone who's been in private practice long enough with seven patients who died of metastatic disease after removing breasts or ovaries or both because of genetic status, um, I feel really sad for these people that they did not have the information, the awareness, the knowledge to dig deeper, to find out what was actually going on in their terrain to begin with and change those things. And whether or not they chose to do the surgery or not, there was work to be done above and beyond the surgery, clearly. Um, and so this young woman that I'm seeing in a couple of weeks, I'm seeing more and more folks like her, and I'm really excited to be able to say, you can turn this boat around in the harbor and not go down that road just because your sister and your mother did. And you can do it with or without a surgical intervention, but you certainly have to work on the rest of the terrain, and assessing that is key. That must be so reassuring. Um... Yeah, it is. It is. And give people hope and, because yeah. it, when hope has been taken away from you, it's you feel absolutely helpless. But like you say, turn the boat round so it doesn't go down that route. That's uh, really something, isn't it? Absolutely. It, it is. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I myself, I've got a BRCA mutation. And after my cancering experience, I um, know what it takes to keep my terrain healthy and vital. And I have to work at it. It's a work in progress. Living on the planet today, none of us get out of this. First of all, none of us get out of this alive, right? So mm. we're all going to eventually leave this place. Um, but I think that uh, we can enhance our quality of life and our, and our quantity of life by making some thoughtful choices now. And if you have the wherewithal to dig deeper and really get a sense of what's going on for you, you can make those corrections before they become, you know, as I always say to my clients, we can address the smoldering ember in the basement long before it becomes a house engulfed in flames. And so that is my ultimate goal of, of where I go with the education of my patients and their family members and their loved ones and what Jess and I hope to um, impact with the book coming out. Mm -hmm. um, as I was telling you before the show started, uh, Chelsea Green sent me the um, proof of your book, uh, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, and I was reading it until I fell asleep last night. I found it really interesting. It wasn't boring. <laughs> But I was I was help, tired. That's not helping people. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I particularly liked um, all the questions that you were asking. But anyway, what led you to writing this book? What was the reason behind it? Well, again, as I said earlier, patients have been the biggest change you know, makers in medicine today. And that is true for how I practice and how I think is my patients have been my biggest guides and teachers. And um, being on this journey for as long as I have for myself, being the advocate 
um, for so many others and exploring uh, the cancering process for so many others, I found over years and years I was saying the same things over and over again, which can lead to burnout among the healthcare providers. And it was also in the limited time we do have with clients, even in my hour sessions I have with a patient, I can't tell them everything. And so I have been pushed for over a decade to write a book that includes a lot of these things that I've learned to, to, as an educational tool for my patients and my colleagues. And um, it was a great idea, but frankly, I didn't have the bandwidth or the time to go for it by myself. So when I began doing what initiated as Women in Cancer Retreats in 2009, we would do these four-day intensives where a group of um, patients with a diagnosis of cancer would join us starting on a Friday afternoon until a Monday morning, and they would be immersed in education, diet, lifestyle modification, incredibly good, nourishing, anti-cancer foods, um, and camaraderie and connection. And we would see labs from before they started the retreat, and then usually within a month after and maintaining their new diet and lifestyle modifications. And it became very evident that they saw and felt significant difference from the get-go. And it imposed them to, to keep you know, doing more and more. And so Dr. Um, or Dr. Jeff Kelly, my co-author, she started coming in as a master nutrition therapist and started doing education at our retreats in 2012 and teaching more specifics on you know, sugar chemistry and how to clean out the environment of your home and how to do a pantry overhaul and, and just simple tips of nutrition. And it became more and more clear that our patients kept requesting, you know, gosh, you guys need to write a book. You need to do a cookbook because we'd feed everyone these extraordinary meals throughout the weekend. And we'd get to the end of the weekend and they'd say, where are the recipes? So we'd share those recipes with them and they'd be very excited. Well, finally, we got pushed enough by enough patients over the years that uh, Jess and I decided it was time to set out and write this cookbook. And what you'll find, since you've got a copy, Linda, is it's not a cookbook. That's where it was going to start. But when we jumped into the project and Chelsea Green Publishing took a look at our manuscript or our idea, they said, you guys have four books here. There's a lot of information. <laughs> and what exactly? And what they said is, you know, it seems to me that we're in a time and a place where people need to understand why. Why do we need to eat this way? Why do we think differently? Why do we have to break down the myths around an anti-cancer diet, et cetera? So Jess and I embarked on an amazing journey together to really go about how I've been thinking and approaching myself and my patients for years. And then she, with her way of thinking and coming in and working with me over the years, taking it to that next level. And together, we were able to put together, break this down into the types of things I explore in every patient, which we have coined the Terrain 10, and create a questionnaire to deeply explore each of those Terrain 10 um, obstacles or issues if people have them, and then to help them understand what each of those Terrain 10 mean and how best to support them. Now, once folks you know, get into the book, you'll be able to take your own survey and get a sense of where you could start or what your priorities may be. That's our goal. Um, in fact, uh, Linda was saying before the interview that she kind of uh, was overwhelmed to see that she had some high markings in a few places. <laughs> I don't want that to scare people. I want that to empower you to say, okay, I guess I'll put some energy here. I guess I'll start here and focus. Because ultimately, we can't start on all 10 at once, you know, without really getting overwhelmed. So picking one or two to really hit hard and learn about 
and work on in yourself and others will really make the biggest difference. Every little change helps. Your cells are listening and any change you make to them, any communication you give them through your diet, through your lifestyle, through your thoughts, through your environment changes their expression. And you can make that in a favorable outcome or a not so favorable outcome. And so our goal is this becomes a guidebook to understand how we approach each and every one of our patients as an individual and how they can start to take their own health back into their own hands and start to make differences long before they ever have to consult with somebody like me. <laughs> you know, my goal is to make myself obsolete as quickly as possible. And so thanks to our patients pushing us, we created this book. And the beauty is after this, we decided to go ahead and do this educational book first. Many of our wonderful colleagues in the field of cancer and nutrition did put out some wonderful cookbooks this year. So we feel really grateful that we took a different arena, a different, excuse me, a different route, and that our colleagues who put out cookbooks now have a resource for their patients to help them understand why of their diet. And then we can also refer back to them and say, and here's a few more ideas for recipes if you're feeling stuck. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I'm getting over That's okay. laryngitis. You're coming out of it. Exactly. You're doing well. Sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> I just had to have a, a really big cough yeah. there. <coughs> there you go. Sorry. <clears throat> okay. That's all right. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> so, I, as you were saying, it isn't a recipe book, but there are lots of um, nutritional okay. and tips for food yeah. in the book. <coughs> what would you say uh, i mean bringing in ldn and supplements yes, yes. and and so on mm -hmm. i know you individualize treatments for everybody mm -hmm. nobody is Correct. the same but if you had to list the most common supplements that seem to suit most people what would you say they would be all right so first of all there's a lot of great supplements and treatments out there but if you don't again i want to reiterate if you don't have a good foundation in your nutrition a lot of those will fall short so it's very important to make sure you're putting the proper fuel and met metabolic uh you know information into your system so that all of your therapies work better so i need to say that up front if i then had to pick let's say the top three of the most effective sort of cancer supportive therapies I've seen in clinical practice, it would be number one, a ketogenic diet, number two, mistletoe extract, and number three, low dose naltrexone. And, um, and then maybe a fourth would be more of the, some of the cytotoxic therapies such as IV vitamin C, our conventional targeted therapies, hyperbaric oxygen, et cetera. Um, and so what you'll notice with that combination is there's things that address direct cytotoxic, direct cancer cell kill. There are things that address immunomodulation, and there are things that address the metabolic base camp of it all. You really need a, a, at least a three-pronged approach to oncology. And I also bring in a fourth, which is the mind-body, that psychoneuroimmunology component. Um, so that's really critical. And I find that when all of those working parts are integrated individually for that person, magic happens, okay? It just does. Things start to reboot. 
um, quality of life, uh, better outcomes, better responses to even conventional therapies, um, being able to stay in, in certain treatments longer <laughs> that otherwise they would have failed. So it's, they're big. They're quite, there's a lot that we can be bringing on to support the cancer patient and to support the outcome of any therapy they choose to do. Mm-hmm. And how soon do you start LDN? Do you use it straight away or do you use it further down the line? Well, it's interesting when for years, the only place I ever used LDN before um, the last couple of years was in my autoimmune and HIV patients. And I learned from Dr. Bahari back in the 90s on using LDN with the HIV community and then later morphed it into my autoimmune community when I left and started private practice. And then I learned, I started really hearing murmurings of this in, you know, 2000 gosh, 7, 2008 of its use in cancer and really started using it more full force in 2012 and 13. Um, Today, I have patients who seek me out simply to have LDN as part of their treatment protocol. So now, again, the patients are driving the communication, driving the conversation and the desire for this therapy because the education is reaching them. I also have many more oncologists and general practitioners who are very amenable to using this therapy and prescribing it without even blinking an eye. And I also, you know, the the research that you've, you know, what you've created, this incredible outlet of patient collaboration, doctor collaboration, education, the conference, the book, the ongoing research trials, it's just creating a momentum now that maybe in the past, this might have been something I brought on a little bit later um, because I had to sort of convince or find someone who could prescribe it or be willing to prescribe it. Now people are coming in and we're starting off from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big difference. <laughs> mm, that's good. And for many of your patients that have tried LDN, have any of them had any negative side effects? I've had a, a few that had some sleep disturbance. And so we've been able to tweak the dose, maybe take it down to a lower dose, which seems to offset it for many people. So let's say they can't tolerate above 1.5 or 3 milligrams. Um, that's an easy fix. If that still doesn't do it, then we alter the time. I'll have them take it at dinner versus at bedtime. And if that doesn't quite do it, we try it in the morning. And 99.9% of the time, that's going to take care of it. And they're able to do it and tolerate it well. I have had two clients out of many, many hundreds who had very weird um, leg cramps that just no matter what we did, we could, no matter where we dosed it, the timing, altering the dose, even then taking them down to like a half a milligram dose, we could not overcome the leg cramps. That was just in two patients. Um, and then I had one patient that had a lot of digestive cramping, a lot of digestive difficulty. And again, no matter what we did to alter the dose, it, and the timing didn't seem to, to help. So to have really three patients that couldn't tolerate this therapy out of the hundreds, my gosh, comparing that to even typical supplements has a pretty good track record. And you mentioned mistletoe therapy there. You've got like four minutes to tell us about your mistletoe therapy. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So mistletoe therapy is the oldest studied, longest used integrative cancer therapy in the world. 
um, started in 1917, thanks to the work of anthroposophical medicine fame, uh, Rudolf Steiner and Eva Wegman. And it has been used continuously as an adjunct therapy for cancer. In Europe, somewhere between 60 to 85% of all patients with cancer will utilize this therapy at some point in time. There's now a clinical trial happening at Johns Hopkins for um, solid tumors that have stopped responding to any other therapies. And it just started signing up clients, patients for this study in February. It is the, it's like our first real um, immunomodulating therapy. That is the hot ticket item in research today in the field of oncology. We're going crazy over immunotherapies, and yet we've had one under our nose for 100 years, and it has worked incredibly well. I've used it in my patients since 2006 and now train doctors um, nationwide all over the United States on how to bring this into their clinical practice. Does it come as a pill, a powder? How do you ah, administer good. it? It's it's an injection. It's a subcutaneous injection, often three times a week. Um, again, this, there's some very there's some dose nuances and patient nuances. The patient's body guides the treatment, and I train the doctors on how to apply that. Um, there's even in this country the tra the tra trial at Hopkins right now is a trial with intravenous application of mistletoe, which is for much more aggressive cancer processes and really seems to turn the turn things around when folks are in a free fall or in palliative care mode. And so that is also what I train doctors in how to, to bring into their office as well. And it's a very well tolerated. In fact, I see less side effects with IV mistletoe and subcutaneous mistletoe than I do from say IV vitamin C or some of the other integrative oncology therapies available today. And it's an incredible immunomodulator, anti-angiogenic. It enhances quality of life because I believe that it works on um, the uh, mental, emotional, the HPA axis, and, and likely the endocannabinoid axis. Very similar personality, if you will, to low-dose naltrexone. And the two of them together have a very powerful synergy, and they often enhance one another's effect. So if I have a patient that stopped responding to, say, low-dose naltrexone, or the other way around, stop responding to mistletoe, I will often introduce the other, and it seems to sort of reinstate the desired effect. Well, that's amazing. And where mm -hmm. can people purchase these books? Um, the books itself um, are available pre-order right now on Amazon.com, Chelsea Green Publishing, and Barnes & Noble. They will be shipping out on the 18th um, to the latest on off of Amazon for pre-order. So they're coming around the bend very quickly. We hope to see them in all bookstores and communities by the end of the month. And um, we have a load of wonderful interviews and book signings and book events coming up around this. We are very excited from the feedback we've gotten from um, people in the industry who've read our book and endorsed our book that we think it's going to help facilitate more conversation and deeper understanding and deeper healing in the cancer community and in prevention of cancer. Mm. Certainly a guide, isn't it, to answering yes. the questions yes. and letting people make um, the right decision and uh, <clears throat> and I guess there is a way of people contacting you. Is there at the end of the book? But um, yeah, yeah. And people can obviously. Yeah. How do how do people make an appointment to come and see you? Is there 
a form in which they can fill it in on your website? They can definitely do an inquiry on the website. They can also directly email info, I-N-F-O, at optimalterrainconsulting.com. And that will get them into conversation about what it takes to get to get all the information in and what it what a new client intake entails. So we've got that. And then I also invite folks to follow us on the social media. We do have a Facebook page specific to the book. So they can follow what's happening there. Metabolic Approach to Cancer is a Facebook page. We also have an Optimal Terrain page and an Optimal Terrain Instagram. And then also Dr. Nasha. Dr. Nasha, one word, Winters, is also my, my Facebook professional page where I try and stay engaged with folks asking more questions about things like low-dose naltrexone and mistletoe and the book and other avenues of integrative oncology. Mm. Well, we wish you every success with the books, and I really hope that you come and stay and see us in July. And thank you very much for being our I'm guest planning today. planning on it. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, Linda, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.